1963, Robert Coleman wrote this book. And afterwards, he went on to write about 20 or a little, few, a little more than 20 after that. But this book became probably the most significant book that he wrote and certainly the most impactful on my life. When I was a freshman in college, I was given this book by a youth pastor, and he encouraged me to read it. I wish I had time to go through the, the, the contents of this book this morning, but this book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, has a great title, great contents, and it speaks to what we're going to look at here this morning. And I can say without any embarrassment whatsoever that other than the Word of God, this little book right here has had the greatest influence on my life. It has impacted and shaped and molded how I approach ministry, uh, the vocation that God has called me to. I highly recommend it. If you've never read it, I've got uh, five more copies on the front pew down here. I'd love to put one in your hand this morning, seriously. So if you've never read this book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, uh, see me afterwards, or if you can't find me, just come up, and there's, there's five right down here. It's got a little bit different cover, but I'd encourage you to pick that up. I love giving that book away because it's so impactful. And I love the title of that book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, because it speaks to the intentionality of Jesus' ministry. The master, Jesus, had a plan for evangelizing and discipling the world. And we're going to get a snapshot of that this morning in the passage that I just read. For those of you that are viewing us online, as Eric had previously had said, you're on the other side of that camera back there, I'd encourage you to have your Bible open. Maybe that means on another tab on your browser, but have a Bible at the ready because you're going to want to follow along with some things we're going to look at. And for those of you here present with me in this room, please have your Bibles ready, whether it's digital or analog paper. We're going to want to look at some things in detail here. We've been in a sermon series on the gospel according to Matthew. We've been doing that for several weeks. And we've noted that Matthew's purpose is to present Jesus as king. And we've learned many things about King Jesus, right? We saw his lineage in chapter 1. We have learned about the circumstances of his birth, the public affirmation of God the Father at his baptism in the Jordan, Jesus' victory over the temptations brought on him by Satan in the wilderness, and then a couple weeks ago, I stood right here and had the opportunity to talk about how Jesus launched his public ministry, and to our surprise, he didn't do it in Jerusalem. He did it in this region of Galilee, far to the north. And so in today's passage, we're going to pick up where we left off. In fact, I would invite you to look back at verse 17. I didn't read it earlier. I meant to, but look at verse 17 very quickly. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we commence into verse 18 from there. Well, this morning, we're also launching a new sermon series that's going to take us from today up until Pentecost Sunday, which is six more Sundays from now. Uh, we uh, are launching this sermon series as a complement to a much broader campaign, what, what I would call a 50-day campaign. We want everyone in our church, all of our congregations, all of our campuses to be totally all in on this. Eric will give some great details to that at the end of our time this morning. But we've entitled this campaign, The Gospel, 50 Days Delighting in Jesus Together. 
we've made available to you a little booklet uh, by Ray Ortland this morning that the first gathering almost cleaned us out. There's probably not any left out there. But you can get one from us, and we want to give it to you. I want to put it in your hands for, for free. Uh, but it's a great read. In addition to that, Eric has edited a study guide, a gospel study guide that we're going to use as a complement to the, to the reading of that book, and it will dovetail quite nicely with the, the messages that we're going to be sharing on Sundays. Let me just read from the first paragraph of that gospel study guide. And there's a stack of those available out there by the door as well when you leave. We need the gospel, the guide says. The gospel is not merely good advice or good ideas. It is good news that changes everything. This good news is news about a person, Jesus. The news has direct implications for our future state. We know that. That's often the the only emphasis, though. But the good news also changes everything about the way we live and engage with others today. And that will be the focus of these next 50 days. And I want to tie that in with this passage in front of us today. So we're going to be doing kind of double duty. We're still preaching in this series in Matthew, but we're also launching this new series on good news. I took you back to verse 17, because that's where we left two weeks ago when I stood here. And we left with this challenge, this challenge that Jesus himself gives when he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That term repent, if you'll remember, speaks to the changing of one's thinking, the changing of one's mind, to think differently. In other words, Repentance is more than just feeling sorry for getting caught, for the consequences of our bad behavior. No, repentance is an entirely new attitude of both mind and heart. And we noticed that when Jesus launches his public ministry, he does it with this clarion call for action, for this change of thinking. The key verse in our passage today, I believe, is verse 23. Take take a minute and just look at verse 23 again. He, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This kingdom, we stumble over that word sometimes. We think of it maybe as a place. It really speaks, the term itself speaks to kingship, the reign or the rule of the king, the sovereignty of the king. And so what's happening here now is not only has Jesus called for a change of thinking, a repentance because the the kingdom of heaven is near, but now he links it with gospel. In other words, he says news about the kingdom is good news. That's what the gospel is. Now, I very easily easily could have uh, opened this morning by asking that question. What do you think of when I say the word gospel? You know, we throw that word around here a lot at a place like New Life Church, right? Hopefully, we should, because that's our focus. But what's in our mind? What's in our thinking? And as we walk through the passage this morning, I I know this happened to me. I think it'll happen to you. We're going to encounter maybe a slightly different viewpoint of what the gospel is, what the good news is maybe from what we have previously understood. 
I've given you a key verse, verse 23. Here's a key word, and it is the word gospel, found also in verse 23. When Jesus links the news of the kingdom with gospel, what he's saying is the gospel is good news. Now, I don't normally throw Hebrew and Greek terms out in a sermon. I'll do that in a podcast <laughs> online or maybe on the book of 1 Samuel. But the, the term here is fascinating. It's actually a compound word. It's the word euangelion. The first part of that, the prefix you, we actually use in English. Uh, euphemism, for example. E-euphemism. The word means good. Good. Angelion is something a little bit different. What does that sound like, by the way? Angelion. Angel. Angel. It means message. Angels were messengers, right, of God's word to humanity. They came bearing news from the throne of God to humanity. So what Jesus is saying here is that this kingdom of heaven idea is in fact good news. It's a good message. It's good tidings. The inbreaking of God's reign, his rule, and it's found in the person, the person of Jesus Christ. Key verse, key word, let me give you the key idea. There's probably several in this passage, but this is the one that, that I'm going to focus on today. Those of you that know me, you know that I speak in bullet terms bullet points. I just do. I don't, in fact, I, I preach. If you look at my notes up here, they're in bullet points as opposed to a narrative. So my key idea is, is kind of a bullet point narrative. The gospel equals there is a king. His name is Jesus. He summons us to join him and he is sovereign over all. Let that sink in. That's good news. That's the gospel. When I say gospel, that's what I have in my mind. As a result of this passage, there is a king. His name is Jesus. He summons us to join him, and he is sovereign over all. And this morning, I want us to look specifically at three different things that emerge out of this text. Jesus is calling, summoning. Um, he's inviting people to these three things. One, to be with him. You could say to, to live with him, but I'm just going to use the word be. It's a state of being. He's inviting us to be with him. Now, obedience is implicit in that. In fact, even the response to him, but it's just simply he wants us to be with him. It's all about relationship. Secondly, as a result of that, he wants us to serve with him. Too often in the church, we flip that around. We, we put service in front of relationship, service in front of being. I think there's a sequence here. Jesus says, I want you to be with me. I want you to serve with me. And then thirdly, he's summoning us. He's calling us. He's inviting us to surrender, to surrender to his authority. Let's look at these in, in great detail. I want to call to your attention, though, that I'm going to use these terms kind of interchangeably, invitation, uh, the, the idea of calling, summoning, all of them, though, are it's a command. It's an imperative. This isn't optional. Jesus is summoning us. He's inviting us. He's uh, calling us, and he's doing it in, in a command sort of a, sort of a form. 
The first one is this. Jesus calls people to be with him. It's found in verses 18 through 22. It's found in these interchanges that he has with these four fishermen. Let's look back again at verses 18, 19, and 20. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, if you've got a King James, it says straightway, they left their nets and followed him. Just a very quick word about geography. Two weeks ago, I talked about this region of Galilee. It wasn't a large region, but it was very populous. And at the center of this region is the Sea of Galilee. And the reason I want to take just a minute here to talk about that is because for the next 14 chapters, Matthew is going to wrap his narrative around this Sea of Galilee. All that happens, all that's taking place, all that Jesus is saying and doing and and whatnot happens around the Sea of Galilee. It was, it was an amazing place to catch fish. It, it supported so many different industries. But the Sea of Galilee isn't really that big of a deal if you just look at it ge- geographically. About 13 miles long and about 7 miles wide. It's kind of a, just a, a, an oblong north to south. It's not that deep, 165 feet at, at its deepest point. But here's what I find fascinating. It's somewhere between 686 and 700 feet below sea level. And we don't often think about that. But all that's going to happen here during most of the gospel account of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is happening below the level of the Mediterranean Sea and a a, a long ways below that. It's just fascinating to me. may not be to you, but it is to me. In these eight verses that we're looking at this morning, I want you to also notice that there are 13 personal pronouns that refer directly to Jesus. Words like he and him and his, and even in the the red letter uh, edition, his words when he says me and I. So in other words, these verses are all about Jesus. The focus is on, definitely on Jesus. But in addition to that, there are also... Uh, 15, almost twice as many plural pronouns referring to other people. And then there are even other plural plural terms referring to the others that are in his circle of influence. Words like them and they and their and those, etc. Here's my point. Jesus is about to invite other people into his mission with him. When you stop and think about it, He's never going to be alone. For the next three to three and a half years, he will not be alone, except for an occasional all-nighter. But up until when they abandoned him in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is always surrounded 24-7 by these to whom he's calling, inviting to join him in his mission. Verse 19, we translate it, follow. Literally, Jesus is using, or Matthew recounting the the instance here, is using two terms here, which literally translated would sound like this. Come here, behind me. Come here, behind me. That's what it means to follow, right? Well, that's exactly what Jesus is 
demanding as well as inviting of these four fishermen that he's about to meet. And it falls in line with how a rabbi would be viewed in that day and age, in the first century. Those who were apprenticed to a rabbi and who would follow him around in order to learn all about life through that rabbi, they literally would walk in the footsteps behind the rabbi with the thought that if the dust from off his feet would just fall onto my feet, that I'm that much closer to being like my rabbi. Isn't that fascinating? And that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus is saying, come here and follow behind me. Come behind me. They were going to become trainees. They weren't just going to sit in on a Zoom call or a symposium or a webinar or an in-class teaching where Jesus was going to share some truth with them. That did happen. Well, like maybe not the Zoom. But they, they did, in fact, hear truth, but they saw it lived out as trainees of the Master. Those of you that sat through the adult Bible class in 2019, seems like a decade ago, uh, when we taught through the gospel according to Mark, you'll remember that we learned that the fact that Jesus was seeking out disciples for himself was actually a breach of custom. That didn't normally happen. You had to go ask, as a disciple, you had to go ask permission, can I come and follow you? And then he would kind of check it out and make a decision, and yes, you can, or no, you can't. Jesus is flipping that, on, that, that agenda on its head, and he's saying, I'm going to go after, I'm going to personally recruit the people that I want to uh, share my mission with. And notice, too, that Jesus didn't choose professionally trained rabbis to join him to launch his ministry. You'd think he would do that, right? But he didn't. Instead, he chose just normal people, working class people. In this case, these first four fishermen. They have skills, but they're, they're not necessarily, they're not stupid, but they're not necessarily learned men in the terms of, of being trained to be a rabbi. But what Jesus is going to do is he's going to show them how, to, how he's going to transform their skills, in this case, fishing, for kingdom purposes. Think of it this way. In the Old Testament, God intentionally chose, I'll give two examples, Moses and David. What did they do vocationally? Shepherds. When God called them, Moses was acting like a shepherd. David was a shepherd. And then he used them to shepherd his people. Well, the same thing is happening here. Jesus is now going to call just normal, ordinary fishermen. And he's going to translate their skills into a way to draw and gather a new people unto himself. This idea of uh, come here and walk behind me or following a, a rabbi like Jesus, it points to several things. It points to a, a, a personal attachment, a relationship, a lasting association. Jesus is not just inviting these four fishermen for a stroll along the seashore to talk about some truth. That's not what he's going to do here. He's inviting them into the demands, the privileges, and the responsibilities of wholehearted, lifelong discipleship. Verse 20 concludes with a different term, translated followed, but it literally means the same thing. It means to walk behind. Matthew, of all the gospel writers, is, is keenly aware of these, these words and uses them more frequently than any, anybody else. 
Let's look at verses 21 and 22. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. He summoned them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. This has been troubling to people. It's been a stumbling block for many. It's like, what? Jesus is just walking along the seashore. He sees two fishermen here and two fishermen there. He calls them out, and boom, they're, they're like, they're what, like super charismatic personality? Well, in light of the rest of the gospel writers, especially John chapter 1, verses 35 to 39, we know that Jesus had already had an encounter with at least one of these four, and that was Andrew. He's named in John chapter 1. The other one is not named, but it's probably John. The point being, they had been followers of or disciples of John the Baptist. And at the baptism, when John points Jesus out to them, they immediately leave John the Baptist and start walking behind Jesus. In fact, the the interchange is fascinating. You you can look it up later. John chapter 1, verses 35 to 39. There's an interesting question and answer that goes on there. James and John here, we find them leaving their boat, the source of their livelihood, and we find them leaving their father, this strong family attachment. They're illustrating that allegiance to Jesus is stronger than any earthly attachment. Our bank account, our job, even our family. In fact, Jesus in chapter 10 is going to later stress the priorities of God above those of family. But he's also going to give instruction on caring for family members too. So we don't want to take that out of context here. But the point being is that you're either all in with Jesus or you're not. And that's what he's calling them to here. I'm reminded of this quote many of you have heard. It's attributed to Jim Elliott, who in 1956 was uh, killed, martyred. He was trying to share the gospel with some of his buddies with a group of Alka tribesmen in Ecuador. The, the, the paraphrase found in his journal was actually a paraphrase of a, of a quote from an earlier pastor. Jim Elliott said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jesus is inviting, he's summoning, he's calling these guys out to come and join him. And they choose to do that. And he's doing the same thing today. Jesus is calling, he's inviting, he's summoning us to simply be with him, to be in relationship with him. Secondly, and I put this again in sequence, we're not only called to be with Jesus, but then Jesus invites or summons us to serve with him, to be on mission with him. Now, this is found throughout the Gospels, but right in this passage today, it's found in a couple verses. Let's look look at verse 19 to begin with. He said to them, a couple of fishermen here, follow me. And I'm going to make you fishers of men. You see, he's already beginning to transform their thinking here about what he's calling them into. To be 
with Jesus, to be in relationship with him, also meant that there's going to be implications for the futures of these four fishermen, and in our case as well. Jesus' disciples are going to come into this living relationship with him where they're going to learn from him every single day, 24-7. But at the same time, they're also going to be trained to the point where he's going to ask them to go and do what he's done with them. He's going to ask them to go and make disciples as well. We see this throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel, but we find it especially in the last chapter. At the end of this worship gathering this morning, Eric is going to read a benediction, and it's going to come from Matthew chapter 28, the last three verses, 18 through 20, what we call the Great Commission, where Jesus is basically saying, look, I've been making disciples of you. Now it's time for you to go and make disciples as well. Baptizing, teaching them, and by the way, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. So Jesus is inviting us to relationship, inviting us into a relationship, but he's also inviting us into mission as well. I love the fact that one of these four is Andrew, because Andrew epitomized this very thing. Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus. There's at least one Andrew in this audience that I can see, and I love the fact that he's named Andrew, because that's what I want for that young man, is that he would always be bringing people to Jesus. If your name is Andrew, then you got a great name for that. Andrew brought Simon, his brother, who becomes Peter. Andrew brought the little boy who had a lunch, and Jesus miraculously turns that into enough food to feed well in excess of 5,000. Andrew also, during the last couple of weeks of Jesus' ministry on earth, he brings some Greeks, some Gentiles, who are seeking to understand about this Messiah. Andrew's always bringing people to Jesus. Look at verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee. Let me just stop right there because the, the, the translation, the word went, that's pretty weak. It literally means to lead, to lead about, to lead around. What's going on here is Matthew saying, he, Jesus, led them about throughout all Galilee. And as he led these men that he was in relationship with, notice what he's doing. He's teaching in their synagogues. He's proclaiming or preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he's healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He's teaching. He's holding forth. He's communicating in such a way that it's going to make sense. He's instructing people. In fact, we get the English word didactic from the Greek term. So he's teaching, and he's doing it in the synagogue. He's doing it in that, in that place of instruction, the place where the, the Jewish people, no matter where they lived in Israel or even outside of Israel, they would gather together in what they called a synagogue. They wouldn't offer sacrifices there. They were there simply for instruction, and they would receive instruction in the Torah, in the law. Well, at this point in his ministry, Jesus is still welcome in the synagogue. That's going to change over the course of three years. But right now, he's going into the synagogue. And as a, as a young Hebrew male, he has the privilege of standing up and giving instruction. So he does that. So he's instructing about this gospel or good news of the kingdom. And then as he goes about, he's leading his followers by, by example. He's proclaiming. He's broadcasting. He's heralding, publishing this good news 
this gospel of the kingdom. And he's doing it with great authority. He's doing it with a, with a, a, a measure of gravity. He's doing it in such a way that people paid attention. Remember? They said, wow, he's, he preaches with such authority because they weren't used to hearing rabbis talk like that. Rabbis were known for, for weighing different views, different opinions, and kind of arguing back and forth. And Jesus comes totally different. And then he demonstrates the reality of this kingdom, the reality of the good news about this kingdom. He demonstrates it by revealing that he has authority. He does it by healing. He does it by casting out demons. He, he, he meets people at their point of greatest need, and he addresses those needs, and he does it all at the same time. He's teaching, he's preaching, and he's healing. I love that. I grew up in a church where we focused simply on communicating the good news about Jesus, that he's my savior, and then I can get to heaven. And I grew up in that kind of environment. In terms of dealing with people's physical needs, nah, not so much. And that's been a great divide in the American evangelical church in my lifetime, elevating evangelism as opposed to maybe some sort of social concern or social action or today's term social justice. We don't see Jesus making an either-or decision here, do we? We see him doing both and. In fact, I would, go, I would take it a notch higher. We see him doing all of the above. Jesus is addressing every need in a person. He's addressing all the needs of the people. He's caring for people in their totality. And while he's communicating the good news, the truth of the good news of his, his kingdom reign and rule, he's also demonstrating that. And as a result of that, it leads to my third point. Namely, in doing so, Jesus is calling people to surrender to his authority. So he's calling us to be with him. He's calling us to serve with him. And in doing so, he's calling us to surrender to his authority. If you're into alliteration, you could say to surrender to his sovereignty. And that'll, that'll help you to remember that. Look at the last two verses, verses 24 and 25. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick. And, and notice what's happening here. Those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons and those having seizures, your version might actually say epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them, and then crowds began to follow him. Jesus demonstrates his power, his authority over demons. He has authority over things that are supernatural. Jesus demonstrates his power, his authority over those who are having seizures. The term there, epilepsy. Epilepsy in the day of Jesus was viewed as a disease of the mind. In fact, the greatest disease of the mind that a person could possibly have. And the convulsions that we are aware of that come from epilepsy, they didn't quite understand that. They viewed that as a disorder of the mind. And in fact, they, they used a term, they called it lunacy, because they believed that it, that it waned and waxed with the phases of the moon, thus lunacy. And no one knew how to treat it, but Jesus did. In Jesus' day, paralysis was considered the greatest disease of the body, and no one knew how to cure it, but Jesus did. 
In fact, we learn he did it oftentimes with just a word. And so by doing so, Jesus is demonstrating his total authority, his sovereignty, his dominion or control over all of creation, even including the terrible consequences of the fall of sin and our missing the mark in our behavior. Well, when we fully grasp the totality of his control, that he has authority over all, then what is our response? Surrender, right? Surrender. I'm not in charge of my life. In fact, a couple chapters later, Matthew's going to address the feelings that we have when life is out of control and we're anxious about providing for our families and food and clothing and so forth. And what's Jesus' antidote to that? Matthew 6, 33. Seek first what? The kingdom of God. Seek first the authority, the dominion of God and his righteousness, and those things will take care of themselves. That's the, that's the good news. That's the, the great news of the kingdom, that God's grace is working out his reign, his rule in our lives. And when he is doing that, when he's ruling in our lives, then he's changing us into the people he's created us to be. So Jesus calls, he invites, he summons us to surrender to his authority. The key idea again, the gospel. The gospel is equal to, it is that there is a king. His name is Jesus. He summons us to join him and he is sovereign over all. Take a breath, Tim. So now what? So now what? It's a question I'm prone to ask at the end or in conclusion of a message these days. So now what? What do we do with that? Well, Jesus is saying to us the same thing he said to Andrew and Simon and James and John. Namely, come here. Walk behind me. Follow me. But that begs questions. It begs questions in my mind. Let me just rattle through a few. If, if you profess faith in Jesus, when you professed faith in Jesus, what was it that you were professing faith in? What was it that you responded to? Were, were you asked, like I was, to simply uh, fulfill a transaction? In my case, it was walk an aisle. Maybe it was to raise a hand. Maybe it was to sign a card. Maybe it was to meet with someone in prayer. I don't, I don't know what it was. I know what it was for me. I was, I was wanting to secure my ticket to an eternal destiny in heaven. Is that the gospel? Is that what the good news is? According to what we've seen this morning, I don't think so. Uh, were you presented with the truth claims of King Jesus, that he is sovereign Lord over the universe, this world, and therefore our lives? Did you turn from or repent from living your life according to your desires, your plans, your hopes? Or have you reoriented your thinking based on his kingdom agenda? And I'm not just speaking to you. I'm going to include me here. Do we know the power of the gospel? The power of the gospel in our daily lives? Are we continually dependent upon this grace of the gospel? Brothers, sisters, Jesus calls us to a daily lifestyle, a daily, I would call, reset of our priorities to match his priorities. 
So the really good news about Jesus' invitation, his summons, his call, is that it involves a change of thinking, but it results in a whole new way of living under God's control. When we revisit Matthew's uh, narrative in chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, that's all about this ethic of repentance. We're going to really dive into that in great detail. Let me just conclude by reading another paragraph from the gospel study guide that that Eric um, edited. While gospel doctrine is proclaimed from the pulpit on Sundays and reinforced in various ways throughout the week, like in life groups, and hopefully that's what happened this morning, right? Hopefully we've been proclaiming from the pulpit gospel doctrine. We believe that gospel culture is built after Sunday's benediction. I love that phrase. Because it's not just about what we're hearing right now. It's about creating a culture of the gospel in our church. Day in and day out, week in and week, week out. Gospel culture is fostered as we share painful prayer requests with one another in each other's living rooms and hopefully pray on the spot when we hear that, when we hear a request from someone. It's not just, okay, brother, okay, sister, I'll pray for you. No, pray for them right then. When we uh, grab a meal together or maybe go out to coffee together through, through discipling relationships in which we have space to honestly and humbly confess our failures, to bear each other's burdens, and to share each other's joys. That's what we want to create here. That's what we want to cultivate. I shouldn't say create. The Holy Spirit creates that. We want to cultivate good news culture. That's the point of what Jesus is doing, and that's the point of what we'll be doing for the next several weeks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the, just the truth of your word. It's so clear. It's so convicting. We need help. By the power of your spirit, would you work in our lives? Lord, if, if there are folks listening to this right now who don't even have a relationship with you, Father, would you continue to draw them to yourself? And I pray that they would step into being with you, in relationship with you. For those of us who have been ostensibly walking with you for many, many years, decades maybe, I pray that the truth of your word would be fresh, would be encouraging, would be challenging. Lord, that we would embrace this good news of your reign, your rule in our lives. And we're asking this because we want you to be glorified through us, and we want our lives to be attractive to those around us. We pray this in the precious name of our King, King Jesus. Amen.